center on one verse tonight, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, first line of the Sermon on the Mount. And it says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are not yours. They're not mopey. The poor in spirit are not filled with self-pity. The poor in spirit are empty before God. The poor in spirit are aware of their absolute need and total dependency upon God. And I think we need to consider the preeminence, the place that this verse is given, compared to the total neglect of its application in the church today. It's the first line in arguably the greatest sermon ever preached, period. So it should probably be pretty important in our lives. And it's possible that if we miss this verse, we miss the significance and how we actually walk out the rest of the three chapters called the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, just to give you a little bit of context, describes the character, the value system, life inside of the kingdom. It was like the constitution of the kingdom of God. And I believe that because we fail to understand this verse and recognize its significance in relation to, and this might sound uh, like a sweeping statement, but the entire Christian life, that we've taken the Sermon on the Mount and we've reduced it to mere ideology. When you take it literally, people think that you're an idealist, but you're not being realistic to think that you could actually live out this type of inner morality and righteousness before God and before man. But the Sermon on the Mount, the Christian life, was never meant to be lived or attempted in your own strength. It was always meant to be lived out in the power of God through the lives of people who have come to the end of themselves. Consider some of the things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Things like, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven with a straight face without wincing or batting an eye. He said that to his Jewish audience who would have seen these people who had an outward observance and extreme uh, self-discipline and religious habits that actually exceeded what was even required in here. They had so many human traditions to make sure they never just barely step outside the lines. And he's saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. He said things like, therefore be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. He said, you have heard that the law says that if a man uh, commits adultery, he's uh, guilty and he's deserving of murder. But I say to you that if you even look at a woman with lust in your eye, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. He, he said, you've heard that the law says Thou shalt not murder, but I tell you, if you're even angry with somebody, you've already committed murder in your heart. He took the bar of righteousness and morality and he raised the standard to what would feel like an unrealistic level. But the last verse at the end and the close of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 28 and 29 says, When Jesus had finished saying all these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. Not as their teachers of the law. You want to know why Jesus had real authority when he spoke these things? Because he had the full force of his life standing behind what he was saying. One of the deep cries of my heart is for the church to have an apostolic witness once again. An apostolic 
a witness means a, a word and a, a witness sent from heaven. Apostle means a sent one. In John 3.27, John the Baptist said that no one can receive anything unless it comes down from above. Jesus said, I don't say anything except for what I hear my father say. I don't do anything except for what I see him do. In other words, I don't walk out my own will. I am sent of God and I speak a word that's been given from above. But his life was a witness in and of itself. There was no discrepancy. There was a complete and total integrity between the fiber of his life and the message he was speaking. Jesus was the Sermon on the Mount in flesh and in body. So yeah, I would say that if you think you can complete the Sermon on the Mount in your own strength and become as Jesus is, then you're way off base. But it was never meant to be completed in our own strength. The second reason that Jesus had real authority when he spoke these words Author E. Stanley Jones, I love the title of, of a book, was called The Unchanging Person and the Unshakable Kingdom. He said there's only two absolutes in this universe. The person, Jesus Christ, and his coming kingdom. Which means that because Jesus had the full force of reality behind him when he spoke, his words had real authority. Sometimes people think that when you're following Jesus, you're becoming irrelevant to the culture and the society around you. I would say that if you're attached to any movement other than the Jesus movement, you're already on your way out. Because everything that can be shaken will be shaken. But there's two unshakable realities. The unchanging man, Jesus Christ. And the unshakable kingdom of God, which is on its way. Anchor yourself to those realities because he had the full force of reality behind what he said. It had real authority. It was an apostolic hearing. I believe Paul had this type of authority. When he showed up in places, he would say, I fully discharged my duty, my priestly duty, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to you. Not just because I spoke it, but because you've seen how I've lived since I've been amongst you. And it was with a demonstration of the kingdom's power. We think that the work is done when it's been spoken. But the full force of a gospel witness in our lives is often lacking because we've reduced the words of Jesus to ideology and not a reality that we're meant to embody and have in flesh. So that when we show up, the full force of the gospel is in the room. That's an apostolic witness. It's not reserved for those who bear the title of apostle, but it's anybody who would bear in their body the marks of the true gospel. That there's no discrepancy between what we say and who we are. But this cannot be attempted or lived out in your own strength. I believe Jesus, because of how he concluded his sermon by saying, anybody who listens to these words and obeys them is like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. And when the storms come, he says they will come and beat upon that house. It's like a house that's built upon the rock and it will not crumble. It will not fall. So he was pretty literal in his interpretation that you were supposed to actually take these things, apply them to your life and live it out. Because there's some people who have only preached the Sermon on the Mount evangelistically who said that Jesus just wanted to jack up the level so high so everyone there would recognize that it's so impossible. Therefore, they must have the grace of God in order to get saved. And I'm not against that. We need the grace of God to get saved, but we need the ongoing and active grace of God moment by moment, day by day for our sanctification to be conformed to the image of Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not usually a point, God, but I've got... 
two points tonight, and this is the first one. The Christian life is impossible in our strength, effort, or ability. Here's just a couple pictures of your life, anyone's life, all people's life, before encountering Jesus. We are like the paralyzed man laying on the mat the day before Jesus showed up in town. We are helpless and paralyzed. No matter how much we would try to muster up in our mind, unable to get up or do anything to change the condition of our life. You might not feel that or be aware of that, but biblically speaking, that's your condition the day before you encounter Jesus. We're like the woman with the issue of blood, who for 12 years sought out doctors and earthly remedies, spent everything she had until she was completely empty. We're like her the day before Jesus was moving through the crowd. The day before. I want you to get in your mind. What at the end of 12 years, at the end of however long that man had been lying on the mat, how hopeless, how helpless, how aware of their physical and immediate need were they? We're like blind Bartimaeus the day before he heard that Jesus was passing by. The day before, where he's just begging, hoping he gets enough for the next meal, but pretty confident that there's nothing that's going to remove his blindness. The scientists till this day cannot heal blind eyes. That help, helpless, that desperate. We're like the man who laid beside the pool called Bethesda, who for 38 years was passed over and not in first place, not fast enough to get into the pool himself as if he could crawl there fast enough. I did the math. 13,870 times he got passed over. 13,870 times he was not picked first. You're like him on the 13,869th day before you met and encountered, and met and encountered Jesus. We need this to sink in. But here's the problem. Jonathan Tremaine Thomas says that often when people have immediate needs and Jesus is standing right in front of them, they look past Jesus to see how he can meet their immediate need and they miss Jesus standing right in front of them. Poor in spirit is not just being aware of what your needs are, but it's being aware of what your deepest need is for God. Being so in tune that you could have everything this world could offer, like the rich young ruler, and yet be soul impoverished. What's a Grammy next to God? What's a Super Bowl trophy next to God? What's a fancy house worthy of being on MTV Cribs next to God? What's the hottest spouse you could ever land next to God? I would tell you the history of the world would say it's not enough. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Central to the gospel is our understanding that we cannot save ourselves, right? You would say that this is central to the gospel of salvation, that we cannot save Ourselves, that we don't have the capacity or the means within ourselves to save ourselves, right? 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it this way. For by, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Emphasize, and this is not of yourselves. Meaning that you didn't buy it. Nor could you have. You didn't have the resource within yourself to purchase your salvation. You didn't earn it. You didn't stack up enough righteous or good deeds to get saved. You didn't deserve it. You were not deserving this. God didn't look down and say, man, he's really just feel like that person has just stood head and shoulders above everyone else. They deserve salvation today. No, it says it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I want you to imagine Nicodemus, a Pharisee and a member of the Jewish ruling council. He comes to Jesus at night, and I want you to imagine hearing Jesus say in John 3, 3, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And then two verses later, Jesus says again, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. And Nicodemus, a trained religious scholar, a member of the high Jewish council, says, how can this be? How can this be? How is this possible, Jesus? And I believe many of us are struggling with this same question. We're struggling to live the authentic Christian life because we fail to recognize its source. We're looking at the authentic Christian life, what we know deep inside of us. God has called us to something much deeper than what our experience has allowed. And we're asking, whether verbally or not, whether consciously or unconsciously, how can this be? How can I, like Paul, show up in a room and the full force of the gospel be behind my witness and my words? How can this be? John 1.13 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. It's getting very literal talking about how children are created, right? But there's a couple words I want you to key in on. Not of natural descent. Flesh. In other words, human effort begets flesh. If you try to do it in your strength, you'll get the results that you can get on your own. Nor of human decision, right? Or a husband's will. Your willpower, your, your grit, your white knuckling it is not going to be enough to produce the life of the spirit, the life that God is calling you to. The life from above cannot be mustered up from within. Salvation must be received as a gift. Why? At the end of Ephesians 2, 9, it says, so that no one can boast. I think we all understand that part of the humility that God works in our life is when we come to the realization that we're sinners desperately in need of grace. But the greater and ongoing agent of humility in our life is receiving the grace of God on a continual basis. And that's supposed to be the true humbling factor. So as I said before, what we often understand as it relates to our salvation, hopefully no one would disagree that salvation is through grace, by faith, a gift from God that no one can earn so that no one can boast in God's presence. But what we often understand of our salvation, we miss when it comes to our sanctification. Like Paul said in Galatians, why did you beginning in the spirit, are you now in the flesh? 
Have you come to the realization that you're completely inadequate to make yourself like Jesus in your own strength, effort, or ability? The more I look at Jesus, the more I get around him. I, I talk to my buddy Trent, who's here leading worship sometimes. We share an office wall next to each other. And we'll just like get together. But man, the more I think about Jesus, the more I realize how desperately unlike him I am. And it's a startling realization. And if you haven't had that realization yet, God has probably graced you with a large measure of ignorance. And I don't mean that uh, in any type of way towards you. But... I mean, do you really understand who Jesus was? That he could literally say, if you've been angry with somebody, you've already committed murder in your heart, and he had a lot of opportunity to be angry with That he could really talk about and describe and have women in his company who traveled through the countryside with him as an unmarried young man in his 30s and have never lusted once. Guys, we cannot be conformed to the image of Christ through our effort and our strength. And if we think we can, we're radically mistaken. I would just ask, show of hands, have you ever just gotten to a place, I'll be the first to raise my hand, where you're just completely frustrated with your lack of Christ-likeness? Just found yourself in the middle of a day and just like, God, I feel like you're just probably sick of me even saying I repent and I'm sorry. I really am trying. But I just keep coming up short again and again and again. But I feel like when the flesh produces a fleshly response, we have one of two responses. Like when you find yourself in that place of frustration, we either dig our heels in harder and we say, I'm just going to try harder, right? Which just leads to more frustration. Or we just give up the whole endeavor and we kind of get into a... a a license to sin mentality where like Jesus wasn't being realistic about this therefore I'm just going to throw grace on it like a band-aid and I'm not actually going to try this Christian life both of which are fleshly begotten responses and will lead the world without an apostolic witness which God desperately desires to give the world in this hour love what 19th century preacher and author Andrew Murray said he said that God works transformation in our lives in two stages First, he gives us the will to do what pleases him. And then he reveals to us our impotence. First, he makes you want to do what pleases him. And then he shows you how completely powerless you are to do it in your own strength. Anybody bear witness to this? First, he gives you the desire to do what pleases him. And then he shows you how completely inadequate you are to accomplish it in your own strength. He will actually allow you, and this is where people have jumped the ship too quick. They should have stayed a little bit longer. That humanly speaking, the Sermon on the Mount is in fact impossible. But then he brings us to Paul's conclusion at the end of Romans 7. Are you guys familiar with Romans 7? Again, sometimes we use this as an excuse for our struggles and never moving past them. Because we say, well, if the Apostle Paul said, I know what I want to do, but what I want to do, I don't do, and the things I do, do, I don't want to do. And we say, well, if Paul struggled like that, then, uh, you know, I'm helpless. Like, of course, just throw in the towel. This is not going to move forward, right? Well, read on, right? Yeah. <laughs> Keep reading. It was a letter, and he was taking people somewhere. There was a, a logic, a train of thought. Can't cherry-pick verses. But there's a conclusion that I think God actually wants you to come to at the end of Romans 7. And I feel like I've been there often recently. 
where Paul says, what a wretched man I am. The Apostle Paul, I believe he's a saint at this point. Divine visitation, sees the radiance from the countenance of the Lord's face, knocks him off of his donkey, baptized in the spirit, appointed as an apostle to the Gentiles, to take the gospel to much of the known world is saying, wretched man I am. And this was a man who had a high level of outward righteousness before he ever even got started. I mean, I know he was persecuting the church, but he records elsewhere that he was actually doing it out of zeal for God, believing that they were like some type of cult. So he was actually doing it out of ignorance. But then obviously it became a source of humility when he realized he was persecuting God's true people. But he's frustrated. He says, what a wretched man I am. Has this ever described your experience before? What a wretched man, what a wretched woman I am. Have you ever read the description of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 through 23? These are the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. I got like two into it and just felt like, am I still in the mind? Come on, be honest. Ever read Paul's description in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 of what real love looks like? Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Love is patient and kind and, and felt like, ooh, I'm not sure that my love has really had the opportunity to mature to the full extent. Ever found your intentions to carry out a great work or task for God? And then found your ability to actually do it completely inadequate, just feeling like I could never actually accomplish the dreams God's put in my heart. So Paul asks in Romans 7.24, after he says, what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thank God that that's not the end of the chapter. Paul answers his own misery and his own question by saying, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Point number two. What is impossible with man is possible with God. So point number one was the entire Christian life is impossible in our own strength, effort, and ability. Point number two is what is impossible with man is possible with God. Because at the end of ourselves is a gateway into the all of God. You ever realize that many of God's attributes are preceded by the word omni, which is just another way of saying all? He doesn't just contain a measure of it. He doesn't have limited resources. When the Bible talks about the power of God, it's he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. When God speaks a word or puts a dream or a ministry calling on your life, it comes with a creative power to complete that task, packed into the word that he speaks. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's not pacing the throne room. He's never caught off guard or surprised by a single detail or occurrence in your life. He has all the facts, all the figures, everything spread out before him. He's seen the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. He's omnipresent. He's present everywhere all the time. He's gone before you and behind you. He's not limited by space or time. He's without limitation altogether. Because he's God. And the beauty of why Jesus said, blessed, which means supremely happy, 
And I believe he was speaking in the Sermon on the Mount ultimately about the age to come. But there's also a present uh, level of soul satisfaction and contentment and supreme happiness that comes from when you realize that I don't have the strength, the resource, the faculty, or the ability within myself to live the life that God created me to live. So I step out of my emptiness into the all of God. That's how the Christian life was meant to be lived, right? What's interesting is in that verse, Romans seven twenty four, where Paul says wretched. That word wretched is almost the polar opposite of blessed. Before you've come to the end of yourselves and stepped into the power and the grace of God for daily Christian living, you will have a wretched and miserable experience. Maybe it's time that we start to listen to how Jesus described the blessed life and not the prosperity preachers. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who empty themselves so they can be filled with God. Empty themselves of resources or whatever it takes. Here's a question for you. Is there a single aspect of your life right now where you are utterly dependent on God in faith? Any steps or risk you're taking where if God doesn't show up, you're high and dry? I would challenge every one of us, myself included in the room, that maybe there needs to be a little bit more of that in our lives so that we can see more of the miraculous power of God breaking out. But the, the power of the Spirit I'm talking about tonight is not the power for signs, wonders, and miracles. Because sometimes we reduce the power of the Spirit to that. But I'm talking about the power for daily apostolic witness in a life conformed to the image of Christ. Which I think actually is a way more supernatural feat. To moment by moment have the mind of Christ developed in you. His heart moved towards people. His desires, His righteousness being formed inside of you. That salt and light. You know that Jesus wasn't just like throwing ideas out like this. He wasn't scatterbrained. When He said salt and light, He was at the end of the Beatitudes. It was a summarizing statement that when you live the blessed life inside the kingdom, by this value system, you will bring out the God flavors in the earth and people will see something in you that's different. And that's called your witness. But if you lose your saltiness, this is what I want you to get. He says something radical. He doesn't say that God will spit you out of his mouth. He doesn't say the church is going to spit you out of his mouth. He says the world will spit you out of their mouth. Because something I fear is what if someone walks off the street like the woman with the issue of blood. 12 years of trying everything in the world and none of it working. She says, finally I'm going to try the church. And she comes in and she tastes it. And it tastes just like the world. And she spits it out. She says, it doesn't work. Jesus isn't for me. There's a lot at stake. The world needs an apostolic witness. Where we don't just have the words of the Facebook post. But we have lives that are salty. Shining with the light of His glory. So that the world doesn't come. Leave just like they walked in the doors and spit us out. Your saltiness and your light is your witness. Which hinges on how much the kingdom value system has been developed inside of you. Which going back to 5.3 which is the start of the Beatitudes. 
is not possible in your strength. Which means you come to God empty, and you come to God needy, and poor enough to receive. And he gives you grace, and he gives you a power that's altogether other to live out the Christian life. Guys, I'm not mad at you. I'm jealous. Jealous for the glory of God. If you want to find something to give your life to, give it to something that's absolute, not already on its way out, and that's all-consuming. Get consumed with a jealousy for what God is jealous for, His own glory. So at the end of Romans 7, when he talks about who will free me from this wretched state, he talks about, thank be to God, the answer is Christ Jesus. And he moves into the beginning of Romans 8. And when Paul wrote the letter, there was no chapter break. And he immediately starts talking about life and the power of the Spirit. Guys, there's a logical flow of his thought. That at the end of himself, in his wretched state, and his inability to do the things that he wanted to do in his heart, there was actually a power not only to desire, but a power to walk out. Guys, do you, do you need this? I need this big time. And I'm not saying that I'm there. I'm probably more in the wretched man I am state. But I want this, because that's the real thing. Check out some of these other verses that Paul said. This wasn't a one-time thing. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. This is the source. If you want to figure out how did Paul have such effectiveness where he went, how did two guys sent out in Acts 13 who started as just ministering unto the Lord, which means they had no agenda, just fasting, praying, worshiping the Lord, ministering at the feet of Jesus, said set aside Paul and Barnabas, and two guys went out and had more fruitful ministry than a thousand churches in America have probably had in the last 10 years. I'm not judging the American church. I work in the American church. But I'm saying we need sent messengers out of the presence of God who have fruitful ministry. And they bear the witness and the marks of true apostolic uh, sending. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is the part I want you to focus on. For it is God who works in you to will... And to work, or sorry, and in order to fulfill his good purposes. Guys, I'm so grateful for that second half. He gave us the will. He showed us our impotence, our inability to do it on our own. But he also gives us, as he works inside of us, the ability to act according to fulfill his good purposes. Galatians 2, 20 through 21. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. It's not me living out this life. But it's Jesus literally doing it inside of me. The life I now live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. I love this one. 1 Corinthians 15.10. Spend some time meditating on this. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Doesn't mean that the Christian life is without effort. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. God giving him the will and the ability to act according to fulfill his good purposes. 
2 Corinthians 12, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Guys, perhaps the source of our frustration has been that we feel like we need to have it all, all the time. And when we find ourselves in these places where we feel weak or insecure or lacking, the first thing we try to do is boost our self-esteem rather than bring the need to God and allow His grace to be sufficient. And to find a power for moment by moment, day by day, living in Christ's likeness that will bring a salty and apostolic witness to the world. So that when we speak, what we speak lines up with who we are on the inside. And they'll say, these people have real authority when they speak. Yes. The band can come back up. I know this has been intense, but here's what I want you guys to do. Go ahead and close your eyes. Here's what I'm not calling you to do. I'm not, definitely not calling you for, yeah, calling you to step out of here and attempt perfection. But I'm also not calling you, the Lord's not calling you to step out of here and use grace as a license for settling for something less than God desires to bring through his church full maturity until we grow to the complete and standard, complete and full standard, which is Christ, the head of his church. Guys, the cross was not only sufficient to pay the debt of your sin, but also to break the power of sin in your life. I love that author Andrew Murray also said, paraphrasing, think about your life before you met Jesus and the things that you easily and naturally were disposed to do. Attitudes you were easily and naturally disposed to have, specifically sinful ones. Habits and activities that you were easily disposed and naturally drifted towards. Things you watched, language that came out of your mouth, attitudes that you had. And how easy and natural it was for you to do those things. Now the question is, why do you have more confidence in your sin nature that you inherited through Adam than the righteous nature that you inherited through Christ, who God vindicated by raising from the dead now lives inside of you through the third person, the Holy Spirit? Why do you not believe that he can so naturally and so easily make you drift towards the things that please the Spirit as children of God? Why do we have more confidence in the sin nature than in the righteousness of Christ? Why do we have more confidence in our struggles than in God's desire to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purposes in the earth today and in our lives? So in a second as the band begins to play, I don't want you to work up some type of striving response, but if you're just aware of I've been trying this, and I didn't even realize it in my own strength. And I'm failing pretty miserably, or I'm frustrated. And I want a different kind of fruit in my life. Jesus didn't say in John 15 that fruit comes through striving, but through abiding in the vine. And as the sap of the Spirit, which is the power of the Spirit, the life of the Spirit inside of you flows through you, 
you will bear not a little bit of fruit, but a lot of fruit. And this will be to the glory of the Father. So maybe you're at that point where you're looking at a lack of fruitfulness in your life, and that fruit just describes Christ's likeness, not just the work of ministry. We read that as how many souls we've got saved. I think he's talking about Christ's likeness being formed in you. And you would say, Lord, I come to you needy and poor in spirit tonight. I come to you empty and aware of my complete inability and impotence to walk this out or to do this on my own. And at the end of myself, I pray for your grace to be poured into my heart and over my life. And for a power that's altogether other to fill my life. You could have been filled with the Spirit before, but come again. And be poor enough not to think you've got to earn. The Spirit is called a gift too. But be poor enough to receive the life of the Spirit working and flowing and moving inside of you. What does it require? Death to self. Yieldedness. Surrender. And here's the crazy thing. Even those require the grace of God. And find that out. Like even what it takes to surrender is a work of the grace of God in my heart. It's Him who gives you the desire. That desire is in your heart. He's not only going to give you the desire, the will to do it, but also the power to complete it. So as the band begins to play, I want you to find a spot somewhere in the room where you can just empty yourself before God and ask for the power of the Spirit and the grace of God to come and fill your heart and to fill your life. And to do in you what you could never do through a hundred years of your own effort and striving. And I believe that God is going to break things off of you. We were praying before you got here that people wouldn't walk out of here the way they walked into the room. That struggles you've had for six years would be broken off of you. That you would have again more confidence in the new nature than the old nature. In God's ability to fulfill his promises than in your own ability to fail. Do you have that confidence tonight? As the band begins to play, I want you to find a space and just make that surrender before the Lord.